Hello, and welcome to the Cannabis Corner. I am your host, Joshua Braff, and I'm here with my partner, Farmer Adam Teitelbaum. Today, we're going to be discussing a new product that Adam and I hadn't seen. It's a sparkling-infused beverage that has no alcohol but 5 milligrams of THC. The company is called La Grandeur, and its uh, founder is Ruby La Grandeur, and she is here with us today. I'm really excited to talk to Ruby about her career because there was a time where she was in the gaming industry and then sort of decided, I'm going to make a move. And her timing has been quite interesting in that so much is coming in the realm of cannabis and cannabis as medicine. But here we see something that looks a lot like champagne, and I'm interested to hear all about it. Welcome, Ruby La Grandeur. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit how you switched from the gaming industry uh, into the cannabis world? Absolutely. So um, it was definitely a journey, but there was there was a pivotal moment that happened within my household. At the time, my daughter was about five years old, and we were having conversations about what you want to be when you grow up. And I was really trying to hit home the idea that she could do or be anything that she wanted to, and that she didn't have to think about just traditional roles for females in the United States. And she, I saw her searching my face while I'm giving her this message, and it made me feel very uncomfortable and sort of aware, very conscious of the words that were coming out of my mouth. And I, I walked away and kissed her goodnight um, and, and laid down that night and thought, wow, that was a... It was kind of a jarring experience. Why Why was that? And after spending a little time unpacking it, I realized that those words were totally empty, that I was not living the, the life that I had envisioned for myself and that I was not living my dreams and aspirations. Therefore, you know, it was just very empty words that I was giving her. Um, and that really set off a complete life reset. So interesting. And the life reset led you to think... What am I going to do with myself? And then how did how did that attach to the cannabis world? Had you been a user or had you learned that it was could be helpful for someone that you love or how did you come to it? Um, so it was very serendipitous. When I was doing my life reset, I decided to leave corporate America, which included gaming, mm-hmm. um, and really try to focus on what's the core of what I'm passionate about, what do I stand for, who am I, and health and wellness has always been a big part of, of the core of who I am. At the same time, I had a very good friend introduce me to the cannabis industry, which is very different. I did grow up with cannabis in my life, and I used it recreationally, but having it to be actually an industry was a a very new idea, and I just dove head into research mode to learn as much as I possibly could because I knew instinctually that there was something about cannabis that aligned with my core values. Exactly, and then how long from this point of view does this beverage come into play? So part of my research was going around to the dispensaries here in San Francisco, and I walked out of my first dispensary immediately knowing what my problem was to solve. Now, how to solve that problem took many trial <laughs> trials and errors. Right. But when I went into the dispensary, there were... Uh, all the beautiful flowers that were beautifully presented and you could open jars and you could smell them and the bud tender was talking to you about all the different terpenes and CBDs and THC, all the different cannabinoids, and it was wonderful. But I'm not a really big smoker. Gotcha. 
So I tried to ask questions about the edibles, and the edibles looked like they were an afterthought. They were down at the the end of the counter where it wasn't well lit. The packaging was hard to read. The bud tender didn't seem to care or know much about it. And everything seemed to have an unbelievable amount of THC in it, although I was still very new in understanding what that meant. Seeing something that said, oh, it has 180 milligrams of THC and then asking the bud tender, hey, I'm pretty, you know, elementary or junior at this. What do you think would work for me? And he literally said, oh, take the tiniest bite possible. Okay. (laughs) Take the tiniest bite possible. (laughs) Ruby, what year was this? Yeah. This was in the end of 2015. Okay. Why do you ask, Adam? Um, I was just I was just wondering where, you know, my perspective is always skewed to what's happening in Colorado. So I was just wondering at what point, and that does seem to kind of fall in line with how edibles, where edibles are now compared to 2015 here mm-hmm. is night and day difference. Right. So much more, much more prominent uh, in our place. They have, you know, entire, you know, uh, counter shelving units, cases to themselves. And, you know, we have refrigerators and freezers with stuff in it. And um, they're very prominently displayed. Is that the case in dispensaries in San Francisco now? Absolutely. There's been a a wonderful uh, uh, growth on the edible side of the industry. Um, I think that back in 2015, edibles or infused products in general probably made up only about 10% of total sales. And now I believe ArcView came out uh, with a doing a report that said that it's somewhere around 30% now of infused products make up the uh, both adult use and recreational, or excuse me, adult use and medicinal marijuana sales. Is, is that, are you referring to California or San Francisco? I'm referring or? to California. California specifically. California. Okay, that's that's very interesting. I you know what, I don't know those exact figures for Colorado, but wow, when I'm in the dispensary, whether it's taking a break, purchasing something or just going through there for work-related stuff because I I uh, run our grow, I see edibles being purchased constantly. We have to stock so many more of them because we fly through these products and there's such a bigger array of products. And I'm guessing where you were going with the product that you designed is that it had a much smaller, more manageable uh, level of THC that's not going to knock you off your socks so that you could actually enjoy the serving of the beverage or and then I'm wondering why it is that you chose to go beverage over something edible a more traditional edible yes um so what I really did is you know I walked away knowing that my problem to, to solve was in the edible side of the cannabis market and I really became obsessed thinking about what would remove all of the barriers for somebody to welcome cannabis into their life because I really truly feel that I can help people create a positive cannabis experience for themselves, all adults. So when I thought about that, I thought about the fact that we love convenience. Having a product that's smokeless is number two. Having a healthy product is really important. I think at the time that the edibles, I, I, I completely agree with you, Adam, that they've they've really improved on so many fronts. Um, but creating something that was really healthy. And then I thought, what would make, you know, there's that thing that happens when you're sharing a joint that's really community focused. 
And when you get to share a joint, you are having a longer conversation with people. You're interacting with people. And I wanted to bring that back. And I felt like traditional edibles at the time didn't allow for that. You cut up a cookie, you each take a tiny bite, and then you walk away. I mean, that bonding moment is gone. It's lost. So with a beverage, you have the chance to sit there. You have the chance to sip it to enjoy it. You have the chance to share it, right? Whether you, you know, bring bring more for other people. And then also, I really wanted to focus on the fact that I didn't want anyone to have a negative cannabis experience. So doing a single serving, single dose. My, my beverage is only 187 milliliters, which is just about six ounces, which is the perfect size for a beverage for somebody to sit and enjoy. So interesting that your thought was... Uh, similar to the circle that forms when someone brings out a joint and you're saying, I'm not a smoker and I can see, I want this to be comfortable for all people who aren't necessarily smokers. And just the notion that, yeah, let's have this glass of non-alcoholic sparkling infused beverage, which I'm so curious to see, to have your friends around for that, for those moments in which people who usually have a joint are talking and laughing and bonding. So it's not something that I had ever thought that that could work. When you take a few sips of this, do you begin to feel the results right away? So because it's in liquid form, Mm -hmm. our bodies tend to break it down faster than a traditional brownie, per se. So anecdotally, we've found that the folks that try our product feel the effects within 30 minutes to 45 minutes at the very most. Whereas with traditional edibles, because it's in a a solid form versus liquid, it takes a little bit longer for your body to metabolize that. Okay. And so can you describe your experience? In other words, is it a, would you say it's like a smoking... (laughs) Mm, So I think the best association that I've come up with is that it's about a half a glass to a glass of wine, depending on your size, your tolerance. So like I said, you start to feel the effects within a half an hour. There's a range, right, for people as, as goes cannabis in general. And having a full beverage for me is a, about the equivalent of having a glass of wine, but I am considered highly sensitive to cannabis as I am to alcohol. So, um, I've never heard anybody compare uh, consuming a cannabis product to alcohol. So is it that you're saying, you know, uh, when you're saying half a glass of wine or a glass of wine, that you feel kind of a warm buzz sensation or what is it? Yeah, it sort of gives you that that ability to mentally relax, right? Mm -hmm. And to and to start to go with the flow a little bit more. I think about how growing up our parents used to have a, a beverage or a drink, whether that was spirits or beer or wine at the end of the night. And you do that to to unwind a little bit. And so La Grandeur is both celebration and unwinding at the same time. The reason that we made it a bright, light cranberry flavor is not only that it pairs well with cannabis, but we also made it sparkling so that it was sort of fun and effervescent. How do you uh, how do you choose the strains that go in, and are they a variety? I mean, would you call this a hybrid effect drink or sativa or indica? Would you classify it as any of these things? So we are definitely working towards that right now. We are our thought process is that we 
are focusing purely on THC. So we want it to be very simple and straightforward. I think that there's a lot of wonderful products out there that have both CBD and THC ratios, and we will start to move in that direction. But we really wanted to create the most consistent effect possible. And for us, that meant that we strip it all down to just the THC. Right now, we do single strain. um, And right now, we do Blue Dream. But we know that we're going to keep playing with all kinds of strains. We chose Blue Dream because it happens to be my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) It's also the most popular, really, across the board. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's easy to get our hands on. That's a wise choice from there. I think it's also smart to go with, you know, one skew, if you will, and you know, perfect that and then build from there, I think is is a really wise way to go about it. I understand that theory. When is it that you created this product? You had this vision in 2015. So when did you begin actually doing this? So as you can imagine, with any life reset, it's not a linear line from A to B. And so actually, when I left the corporate world, I also went through a massive life change where I had a divorce. And then I decided I knew that even though I was going through this this massive life change, that I still wanted to have my own company and to realize my own vision. Um, I just knew that that needed to take a little bit of a step back. So I still targeted the cannabis industry and went to work for a couple other great companies um, on contract to help them out and to learn and to make connections until I was able to really step in and start working on my my idea. Now, just to be clear, when I stepped out of that dispensary, I knew my problem to solve, but I didn't know exactly how to solve it, right? Mm. So it definitely took trial and error to figure out how to get to a beverage and then how to formulate a beverage is also something that's very complicated and proprietary. You must have been in the lab with somebody with little shot glasses like, (laughs) I think it needs more THC. (laughs) Was it... it, uh, There were definitely moments where yeah. I learned the hard way that I can't test early in the morning because then the rest of my day is completely shot. Yeah, you got to think about this is like a chess move yeah. here. Really, I feel that if I were to consume that first thing in the morning, that the rest of my day would just be amazing. <laughs> well, that's Adam for you. Yeah. Now, but Ruby, if you had two glasses of this, it didn't hit you yet because it's going to take a half hour. Mm-hmm. And would you go into that second glass or is, is would you say that's not for me? So speaking personally, yeah. absolutely, because I know my product inside and out. I'm very comfortable with my product. Um, during the weekday, I'll have one in mm-hmm. the evening. But during the weekend or if I'm in a really you know excited social situation, mm-hmm. I've got girlfriends over, um, I will absolutely have two, sometimes even three. Okay, sometimes <laughs> even three. So does that feel like three glasses of wine? Yes. Okay. Yes. And you're not a drinker, so it's kind of like, I want to have fun, too. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I've got I've to try some of this stuff, yeah. but I guess I'll, I have to come to California to do that, right? Yes, that is Tell true. Tell us a little bit how one gets it, uh, Ruby. So right now, we are being carried in two delivery services here in San Francisco. One is called Get Sava, or Sava, and the other one is Own a Life. Both companies are run and founded by women, and they create very curated menus. So the products that they're willing to carry have to go through a high level or a very thick filter for what they want to see and provide for their patients. And we'll have more with our interview with Ruby Lagrandeur in a future episode of The Cannabis Corner.
WeedMaps.com is a legal cannabis community where cannabis consumers connect with others in their geographic region to freely discuss and review local cannabis co-ops, storefronts, medical doctors, and delivery services. Download the WeedMaps app and discover information about strains, edibles, topicals, brands, and deals near you. Read a review, write a review, and engage with your cannabis community. Connect with cannabis-like-minded people and find the products and doctors you're looking for at WeedMaps.com. Hello and welcome back to the Cannabis Corner. Today we are so excited to have two attorneys from Irvin Cohen and Jessup based in LA. We have Iran Hopkins and Claudia Fu who are going to tell us a little bit about how their world intersects with the cannabis world in California, in Los Angeles. Just letting you know, we haven't talked to attorneys uh, on the show yet, and that's why Adam and I have been interested in, in talking to people in all realms and, and how they come to the cannabis industry, police and scientists and educators. But here we have uh, these two attorneys, so I want to welcome you two. And I'll start with you, Iran. Tell me, tell us a little bit how you came to be in the cannabis industry as an attorney and what year that was. Okay. Well, thank you for having us. We're excited to participate with the show. Sure. I first encountered cannabis at work in my capacity as a lawyer around 2010, where we started getting landlords that we represented started receiving either cease and desist or demand letters from their city attorney or district attorney that was asking them to evict a marijuana tenant usually a dispensary, okay, or that clients that had gotten notices from their commercial lenders that they were in violation of their loan covenants by having a cannabis tenant on their property. So first was resolving issues for tenants that needed to evict cannabis tenants as this was developing. Around that time, a very close friend of ours, my, friend, my husband's in mine, who was also a lawyer, he quit being a lawyer and bought a dispensary, a Prop D compliant pre-ICO dispensary, and started operating that business. So we would get some of the insider scoop from him, and he still does have his dispensary, and I had been hoping that he would become a client of our firm, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Were there full grows occurring in these properties? You said dispensary. It was 2010. Was it considered an illegal dispensary or was it someone's personal grow that was overwhelming this property? The properties that I encountered in that era were more retail locations, okay. not necessarily like a, a cultivation facility. Okay. At that time, a lot of the cultivation facilities were claiming immunity under the Compassionate Use Act and had underground garage grows and, you know, maybe warehouses that had not been properly, you know, who knows how proper it was for them to be operating in some of these spaces. But the Compassionate Use Act immunities were a little confusing, but they did permit collectives and cooperatives to grow medicine and trade it so long as they were not making a profit. Okay, so it's 2010. It's kind of uh, 
the the new tide of of stigma lifting, at least in the Pacific Northwest or and in California, had not gotten going yet. I know that Adam and I were working together in '08, and there was full it, it was fully illegal in the country. So when you delved in from an attorney's perspective to assist these people, what gave you the bravery? to pick a side in a, a judgmental society about cannabis um were you is it was your firm or were you representing people with progressive issues other than cannabis at the time why did you jump in to defend these clients well and, and just to clarify we were not necessarily defending the operators we were working with the landlords whether it was some sort of property manager that had gone rogue and mm-hmm. leased a tenancy to a dispensary. It was more like an innocent landlord situation where they were freaking out because they now had gotten these scary demand letters. You know, on that end, it was more like, get these guys out of here. But I come from a very progressive family, and both of my parents, my father's in agriculture, and my mother's a nurse practitioner, and they have wildly different perspectives on cannabis, but it was always something that I was aware of, and I could see the tide coming in. I knew what, what was coming, and also around that time, there were more blogs from a legal perspective, like the Canada Law blog, and what was going on. In Oregon and Washington was starting to pick up steam. So there became it became more of an interesting legal analysis that I paid very close attention to and on my own personal time maintained interest and educated myself as the law was progressing in other states, knowing that eventually they'd have to show up in California and we'd have a giant mess to clean up given our twenty year history with the patchwork quilt of the legal immunities. I see. I see how you came to it. You saw that it was widening, the stigma was lifting, and it was a good fit for you from a progressive family. And you jumped in, you find it interesting. Is you, as you, your mother's a, a nurse uh, practitioner, does she believe in cannabis as medicine? She's also very Latin American. So I think she's a little bit uncomfortable with it. You know, I grew up in a very Latin American household with a family that lives in Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. And I remember clearly derogatory terms like, that's a marijuana. Like, that guy is a marijuana. He, you know, like, don't hang around with him. He's a bad guy. He'll get you in trouble. So there's a lot of stigma you know, like that, where people don't understand sure. how it can be medicine, how it can be helpful, or an alternative treatment to anxiety medication or ADHD, you know, calming a lot of different conditions that are treated with psychiatric medication that can also be treated with cannabis. And it doesn't even have to be psychoactive, right? So right. I don't know where we were going with that. Well, no, you, you, you came out of that upbringing and discovered a belief in cannabis as medicine, along with other progressive thoughts, but then took it took it on your own and ran with it after you passed the bar. It, it seems you knew what you wanted to do. do. Are you flooded with people looking for representation in this area? Has the new reel opened up for the two of you? Absolutely. It, okay. Absolutely. What was coming with Prop 64 last year in early 2016? We start, I started consulting here in the firm with some of our colleagues that are experts in the Controlled Substances Act 
to think through the legal considerations and the bar and ethical considerations on whether or not we could even represent clients that were cannabis operators Mm -hmm. and to create the documentation that was necessary in order to clearly identify the risks and the limitations on, or not necessarily limitations, but the parameters under which we as lawyers can work with cannabis operators. Mm -hmm. And it's very clearly stated in our opinion, that businesses that are seeking to be compliant with California law have the right to engage counsel to represent them in order to understand how to become compliant. So we prepared engagement letters with special disclosures and acknowledgments on the challenges and the inconsistencies that exist between federal and state law. And we were ready when our first clients came knocking at the door just a couple months later in early 2016. And it has been mushrooming and now exploding since then. So, Iran, would you say that uh, your area of practice is uh, regarding cannabis is in compliance and real estate or contracts? Uh, what What is your, your area exactly? Maybe we should step back a little bit. Um, the summary statement before we step back is that we are complex transactions lawyers in general. We work in complex transactions across a number of industries, private equity, professional sports, real estate portfolios with ERISA money, complicated business structures with cross-border operations, So we know how to structure complex deals and how to arrange intercompany transactions or how to move money around in the consolidated group, how to establish a consolidated group, and the tax considerations that go into it. So for us, we were already doing the complex business and real estate work that is an integral part of the cannabis industry work. And we've now become regulatory experts in California cannabis law as it is evolving here in the state. Excellent. So then pretty much your clients in the cannabis industry are, are they investors? They, are they, you know, the actual dispensary companies, grow ops, uh, or, you know, other subsidiaries within the cannabis industry? What type of clients are you servicing exactly? So we service clients from all over the industry, from landlords, tenants, lenders, uh, what we call legacy operators, new operators, investors, you know, cultivators, consultants, um, a lot of ancillary services. And we do, you know, their upper tier structuring. We help them put together their applications for permitting. We do property acquisitions. We do their lease negotiations. And we can help them expand their business. Um, We've done some licensing deals into other states uh, for various well-known California-based brands. And we're now doing a lot of inbound to California from states that have been ahead of California. We're now doing inbound JVs where, because of the way that the industry has evolved and because of the inability to cross state lines as an operator. Any brands that exist in other jurisdictions have to either establish their own new company in the state in which they want to expand or 
do a joint venture transaction with a local operator who will license the brand and the ability to produce those products, the trade secrets on the recipes, and then go to market. So, uh, Josh, uh, you know, weed is no longer just being grown in people's basements. Um, it, it, can you believe this, that, uh, that, that cannabis is being spoken in these terms and uh, it's been so legitimized uh, is incredible. Would, did, did both of you ever think you would be, you know, practicing in the cannabis space when you entered law school or when you graduated from law school? Not at all. I mean, I'm I'm a fairly recent graduate, and I was not expecting this to be kind of the core of my work as a lawyer, but um, it is definitely an interesting area, and I mean, I feel lucky to be a part of it. We are learning every day, and it's so cutting edge. It's yes. really interesting and exciting. And That's it's, so it's wonderful. It's exciting to be able to look back and say that we were you know, at the forefront as the laws were still developing. Oh, and for so me, it's a whole other area, really, of law. I wonder if law schools are now catering to this at all, and are law schools teaching classes about this and legal? Yeah. They are I think the law schools are caught up. No, yet. not yet. But we did um, get invited to serve on the board of directors for a program at the UCLA Extension. Uh, so we are on the board, and we're helping them develop the course materials for their first uh, UCLA Extension class on cannabis. And we're eventually going to ex- expand it into a series of classes because where we are in this industry right now is shifting from cannabis as a criminal enterprise to cannabis as an agricultural commodity product with worldwide distribution and a science-based industry. So there are so many different ways and so many different schools and areas of focus that can learn and participate in this industry. It's actually very exciting. I have another question, which is, I don't know if this is a a different area, but if one of your clients uh, had a proprietary strain that they had created and said, hey, you know, we'd like to um, pursue patenting this strain, is that something you'd you'd be able to help your clients with, or is that something they need to see a patent attorney for? Well, uh, we ourselves do not prosecute patents, but we have resources for that. But I think the bigger question becomes, do you want to patent it? And um, we also share the the benefit of having professional agronomists who work in worldwide distribution of produce and the cultivation of worldwide distribution of produce. And by the way, one of them is my father. So, um, you know, there are a lot of debates on whether or not you want to patent your strain. Why would you give away your secrets? You know, it depends. It's a business decision, but we can definitely advise clients on whether or not they should or give them the information to make that decision. There's sort of a gold rush element to what you do in the sense that there were attorneys who were once involved in prohibition who were talking to each other about, hey, this is there's going to be people drinking beer and watching sports, and this is becoming a marketing animal. And there's, that's the sort of uh, – the, in, in the cloud lifting of the stigma, there's this realization from many different uh, industries and, of course, the law uh, with all this regulation that's required. 
um, to um, ride this tide of of what's occurring, the ubiquity of of cannabis at different levels being offered to the masses instead of say alcohol, which is really can destroy a family and a person. Uh, not a whole lot of cannabis stories about uh, marriages being torn apart and 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 parents leaving kids behind and. Um, perhaps that's not alcohol's fault completely, but it's a it's a rough ride when you're in the sport of alcohol. And here in a, in a society of of rising anxiety, society of rising anxiety, we find ourselves with something where you can step on the first rung before the fifth rung, and also wake up in the morning and continue being productive and and yourself. So the way that you two bring language to it is kind of exciting in that way, and also. It's like it's your turn. It's you, you. You lucked out. This is a very interesting legal thing where you're both learning each every day, and it's in it. There's altruism in the notion that an elderly person who has been stigmatized can now put down the pharma, put down the pill they've been taking for fifty years, and and try something new that has always been in the doghouse. And we'll have more with attorneys Iran Hopkins and Claudia Fu in a future episode of the Cannabis Corner. Farmer Adam and I are so grateful that you're listening, and don't forget to look for us on Instagram and Twitter. We hope you have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time on the Cannabis Corner. Mm-hmm.